Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This evening, we are going to present part 53 of the 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, and once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to do that. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 18th, 2021. Now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and here we are to discuss proof number 63, the ram, the goat, and four Persian kings. Throughout the past several presentations in this series, we have been discussing the great world empires which Daniel had prophesied, first from a vision experienced by Nebuchadnezzar, and then from a vision of his own, which are recorded in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. From there, we presented an interpretation of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13. The first beast of that chapter was described as the same series of empires and the second as the Roman Catholic papacy, an office which had acquired its power when it was ordained by the emperor Justinian for which reason we identify him with the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now we shall take the next step into Daniel chapters 8 and 11 and discuss the visions of the ram and the goat and of four Persian kings. After that, we hope to discuss another little horn, which is prophesied later in Daniel chapter 8. As we already hope to have elucidated once it is realized that all of these prophecies of future history, recorded by Daniel and John, were fulfilled in the white tribes of Europe and Mesopotamia, then there should be no doubt that the white nations of Christian Europe are the descendants of the ancient Israelites, who were also white. Truthfids, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so here we're essentially uh, coming up to Alexander the Great, or at least uh, the build-up to him, where the first the rise fall of Babylon, the rise fall of Persia, and then how Alexander essentially takes over, and then uh, the Greeks rule the East. And uh, this shows you how important it is to, to really study and understand history, that if you don't understand what went on, then you really can't understand all these prophecies, right? And when you read the Bible, it's all going to be gibberish. And But when you actually understand history, it starts to all become clear and it all fits together. And, and here is where uh, Yahweh essentially um, started to really accelerate the uh, expansion of the dispersed Israelites and the pushing aside of the other Adamic people and empires, right? Uh, of course, the Israelites had been dispersed to places in Europe already, but here, um, you know, it's about three, four hundred years before Christ. He's really starting to prepare the way where all the former Adamic nations are being swept aside so that when we get to the by the time of Christ, suddenly the whole Adamic world is now essentially Israelites, right? And this is all fulfilling the promise to Abraham that he would inherit the world. So so when you understand history and can step back, you can see how it, what, what it's all leading to, right? And how now uh, the Israelites rule, rule the world, essentially, right? Or at least up until a century ago where uh, the Jews have taken over. Uh, right, Bill? Well, well <clears throat> absolutely. And that's absolutely correct. And, and denominational Christians, Judeo-tards, we like to call them, 
Judeo-Christians because their thinking is Judaized. Even if, and a lot of people say, oh, that's an oxymoron, Judeo-Christianity. And of course it is. Those people are trying to sound smart by correcting me when I say Judeo-Christian. But I say Judeo-Christian because it represents these people very well. They are Judaized Christians. They're not really Christians at all. So it's an oxymoron, but from our perspective, the term fits. It fits very well. That being said, Judeo-Christians ignore all the words of the prophets and all the prophecies unless they could show how it refers to Christ or how it's a prophecy of Christ and proves Jesus, their version of Jesus. At the same time, they ignore all the prophecies that have to do with the people of Christ, which are the ancient children of Israel. And I never hear, not that I listen very often, but I never hear examples of Judeo-Christian pastors or mainstream denominational Christian pastors illustrating the fulfillment of any prophecies of Scripture unless they have something to do with Christ. That's the only time they venture into that, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so they basically ignore over half of the prophecies of Scripture, well over half, probably 80% of the prophecies of Scripture. They just ignore. They, they don't care about the true children of God and what Yahweh God said that he would do with his children, even though that is still the subject of the new covenant. They don't care about it. They think that all of that's been changed somehow. It's disgraceful because they're denying Christ while trying to prove that he, Jesus is the Christ or Yahshua is the Messiah. At the same time, they're denying him because they're denying the mission which for which he had come, the real purposes for which he had come. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, they they, they always teach that um, that there was some great change when he came. That suddenly um, the whole Bible became universal, right? right? That there was this big flip over, and it's just astonishing. Uh, I always get comments like that constantly on YouTube, but. Um, yeah, it's very clear that he only came for the Israelites. That was essentially his only mission, right? Right. And every single passage they try to use to deny that and to claim their universalism it is taken out of context or poorly understood. And most of them come from the words of John or the words of Paul. None of them come from the words of Christ. So they're purposely misunderstanding John and Paul, primarily. Okay, the ram, the goat, and four Persian kings. The vision in Daniel chapter 7 of the four beast empires followed by a little horn is broad in scope and was experienced by Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar, who was the son of Nabonidus the fourth and final successor of Nebuchadnezzar II. Nabonidus was the last independent Babylonian king. It's in his day that 
Cyrus, the king of Persia, had come and conquered Babylon, defeated the Babylonians, and and subjected themselves, subjected subjected the Babylonians to his empire, to his rule. Belshazzar served in Babylon as regent for his father for most of his rule, but never had the title of king, which belonged to his father. The book of Nezar ascended to the Babylonian throne in 605 BC, and soon thereafter had defeated Pharaoh Necho II at the Battle of Carchemish. After the fall of Assyria in 612 BC, the Egyptians had hoped to gain portions of the empire to which they had historical ties or claims. So they started with Carchemish, which was the ancient Hittite city. And that's interesting because we should know from scripture that the Egyptians were Mitzraim and had descended from Ham, and the Hittites were also descended from Ham, even though they were from Canaan. In 609 BC, Josiah, the king of Judah, was also killed in that endeavor as he confronted Necho when he had passed through Judah with his armies. But the defeat of Necho ensured that the Babylonians would succeed the Assyrians as the rulers of the Adamic world. The book of Nezar died in 562 BC. He had a very long rule, 43 years. And the next four kings were all relatively short-lived. There was one that ruled for four years. There was another one that ruled for six. And then there was one that ruled only for perhaps two months, whom Nabonidus actually had a successful coup again, coup against in order to supplant him as, as king. So that was a turbulent time, those four years. So Nabonidus, along with his son Belshazzar, had orchestrated a coup against his predecessor and had then ruled for about 17 years. Apparently, for most of that time, Nabonidus was not in Babylon. He was probably out waging war, it seems, while his son, he left his son to rule in Babylon. Then the visions of Daniel chapter 8 are said by the prophet to have come to him in the third year of Belshazzar. Those visions in chapter 7, as I had mentioned, came in the first year of Belshazzar. So Daniel chapter 8 is an entirely new set of visions. It represents entirely new visions, which Daniel had had two years later. Since Belshazzar was never more than crown prince and regent in Babylon, Counting from the beginning of his regency in 553 BC, we can approximate the time of this vision to late 551 or early 550 BC. By this time, Daniel must have been quite old, as old as 64 years of age, but perhaps even older, since he was a young man, but is described as a mature man when he was first taken into the captivity. The canonical portions of the book of Daniel begin by explaining that Daniel went to Babylon with the captives of the time of Jehoiakim, which was about 597 BC, when the Nebuchadnezzar had first gone to Jerusalem. 
We are not told when Daniel died, but he lived for at least the first three years of the Persian rule of Babylon, which began in 539 BC, according to Daniel chapter 10. So if Daniel lived until 536 BC, he was at least 16 in 597 BC. So he lived to be at least 80 years old, it seems, approximating. In Daniel chapter 8, we read of a vision which Daniel also had written, which was after that which appeared unto me at first, which is apparently the vision described in Daniel chapter 7. If we read the first six chapters of Daniel, the visions which he interpreted belong to the book of Nezar, not to Daniel, right? So Daniel chapter 7 is the vision which appeared to him at first, and now two years later, we see this vision in Daniel chapter 8 is his second vision. There's another one in Daniel chapter 9, and, and there's a couple more. Daniel chapter 10, 11, 12 are all visions. Chapter 12 and chapter 11, I believe, are the same vision, generally. The chapter divisions roughly coinciding with Daniel's visions, but they're not in very good order. Some of the chapters of Daniel are actually out of order. If you read through the chapters, you'll see that he's with Belshazzar, and then he's with Darius, and then he's, who's a Persian, and then he's back to Belshazzar. There are chapters in Daniel, sadly, which are out of order, and they've been out of order for over 2,400 years. That's a digression. So, after Daniel explains that this is a vision which had appeared to him later on, we read from Daniel chapter 8, verse 2, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulay. Now, to me, this is significant. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him close, come close unto the ram, and he was moved with collar against him, collar or anger and smote the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it, or in place of it, came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, before we interpret this vision, we should place it on a back burner. 
Because a later vision, which Daniel experienced, and which had come to him in the first year of Darius the Mede, prophecies and earlier period that the than the vision of the ram and the goat. And it is important to understand that period first, because I believe it sets the historical context for this vision. Daniel did not receive his visions in historical order, in the historical order that they would unfold. This is where we read in Daniel chapter 11, where the prophet refers to himself in the first person, also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. So we should interpret that prophecy, which begins with those words in Daniel chapter 11, before we interpret this prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. And I think that will lend to a better understanding of the interpretation or the proper interpretation of Daniel's visions. I don't know if you have anything to say. So, so he means that he will personally greet uh, Cyrus the Great and um, talk, talk to him and strengthen him. And, and Cyrus certainly respected Daniel, right? He, he was, um, it seems he was very glad when Daniel survived the um, lion's den, right? Well, absolutely. Daniel wasn't just some Hebrew scribe sitting in a hole in Babylon and, and writing these things out. The book of Daniel itself informs us that Daniel was third in command of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, that he, had, he was a man of great respect and evidently of great sagacity or wisdom, and that these rulers had kept him in their courts. And I'm going to speak about Daniel's presence in Elam a little further on, but it's significant that Daniel is present in Elam, and I don't think I realized this as much when I wrote it yesterday. That that's I don't have time for an editor, right? But it's significant that Daniel is in Elam in Daniel chapter 8, where it's actually during the reign of Belshazzar who is in in who is the regent in Babylonia during this period so i'll discuss that a little later and they called it the province of elam which shows uh was it under it must have been under rule right if it was a province or yes. at least that's how they translated it yes and and i will discuss that elam is usually translated as persia in the scriptures Every single that, that's because of the the Greek hero Perseus, right, who fought Medusa with the snake heads and used the shield to see the reflection and cut her head off, right? That they believed that um, Perseus was the one who founded Persia, right, in the myth. That was the Greek version of of, of mythology, right? That wasn't necessarily the Persian version, but that was the way the Greeks saw it. Right, there was the eponymous, an eponymous ancestor named Persis or Perseus. Yes. Before we may truly understand these words of Daniel here in chapter eleven, verse one, also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. 
before we may truly understand that, we should understand that many Persian words that were interpreted and assigned to various rulers as names by the Greek writers were actually mere titles. And they were not truly personal names at all in the sense that we use personal names. So it is with Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus in our, in our Bibles, and other terms that they're really titles for, for kings that had different personal names. And some of those personal names are lost in history. Although the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Daniel chapter 11 also has the reference to Darius the Mede, in the Greek Septuagint, it says the first year of Cyrus. And either reference is actually a reference to Cyrus the Great, the first king of the post-Babylonian Persian Empire. Or I should say the, no, he's not the first king of the post-Assyrian, but it is the post-Assyrian Persian Empire. But Cyrus the Great was the first king of the post-Babylonian Persian Empire because he's the man that overthrew the Babylonians. And he ruled for 11 years. He ruled over the empire, where before that he was merely a king in, in Persia or Elam, right? The Septuagint translators must have also understood that the title Darius the Mede had referred to the Persian king more popularly known as Cyrus the Great. So, counting from Cyrus, whom Daniel had evidently called after the title Darius the Mede, as his mother was a princess of the Medes, and we'll get into that also. We then further read in the words of Daniel from that chapter, from verse 2 of Daniel chapter 11. And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia, or Greece, and a mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those. In other words, the four generals that take the portions of Alexander's kingdom won't all hold on to it, right? Others Bill, will Bill where it says um, the four winds of heaven, is that kind of implying the Israelites are going to rule, or, or is it just a poetic way of saying it? Like, I think it's just it, a poetic way of saying that the kingdom's going to be divided into four pieces, and we will see that also because it says the same thing in different language as we've read in Daniel chapter 8, where in verse 8, it says, therefore the goat waxed very great. And once you realize that that goat is Alexander the Great, you see a perfect fulfillment of this in history. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. When he was at the height of his power, he was immediately broken. As soon as he secured the Persian Empire, 
for himself conquered the Persians and came to rule over an empire much greater than any of his successor, any of his predecessors, the Nazar or the Assyrians, that then he was broken because he died in Babylon. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So we see that the empire of Alexander was destined and prophesied in scripture twice to be split into four pieces. And it was split into four pieces. Yeah, he died at um, just 32, right? And uh, he, he wanted to go for Arabia, but uh, clearly that was never destined to happen. Right. I don't have it. I don't have the details of how it was split into four pieces in this article. But there were the Ptolemies who came to rule over Egypt and some of the adjacent portions of the empire, and the Seleucids who came to rule over the Persian and Anatolian portions of the empire. And then Greek. Greece proper was actually split, and one general came to rule over the northern provinces, and another one over the over the Greece itself. Right, so I don't remember exactly how those lines were drawn. It is in other papers at Christogenia, where I detail that, and I believe especially in Christreich, I think in in my series on the of commentaries on the Revelation. But I can't quite pin it down. And and the language is too general for me to just do a quick search, right? So <laughs> it'll have to wait, but perhaps I, I will mention that at the beginning of our next presentation. Yeah, if, and there was um, a lot of assassination. So um, even though Alexander had a few generals, that they were all they all began to fight each other and, and assassinate each other, and then eventually for emerged as the rulers right so it wouldn't be it wasn't immediate obvious uh who was going to end up ruling but whoever did was prophesied obviously right absolutely cyrus cyrus the greatest technically cyrus too there was a much earlier cyrus who was a king of persia cyrus became king of persia in 550 bc but he did not conquer Babylon until 539 BC. So where Daniel said, in the first year of Darius, he must have meant to refer to 539 BC, which is the first year in which Cyrus had ruled over Daniel, right? Because until that point, Daniel was ruled over by Belshazzar, was his superior. So Cyrus, kill, Cy Cyrus himself was killed in a battle with the Massagete, he was trying to conquer the Germanic tribes to the north in 529 BC. The next king was Cambyses, his son, who, had, who was badly injured as he returned from a campaign in Egypt for the empire. He was reconquering Egypt and died in Ecbatana, the capital city of the ancient Medes. As the story was told by the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote not long after 450 BC, the next king of Persia, after Cambyses, was one of the Magi, called Pseudo-Smyrtus, because he pretended to be Smyrtus, which was Herodotus' name for the 
brother of Cambyses. The Persian name for the imposter is Guamada. Instead of Pseudosmyrtus, they called him Guamada. He ruled for perhaps about nine months in 522 and 521 BC. Before the fraud was discovered, and he was ousted in a coup. One of the leaders of the coup was Darius Hystaspis, who ruled from 521 to 486 BC. It was Darius who had finally allowed Zerubbabel and the prophets of Judah in Babylon to return and rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That was Darius, and, and that was at the beginning of his rule. Some modern historians now hold that Smyrtus, whose Persian name was Bardia, was the legitimate son of Cyrus II, and that Darius I and his companions invented the account of the imposter Guamada as an excuse to seize the throne. So some historians think that Herodotus repeated a tale that was fabricated by Darius himself to legitimize his rule, that he really killed the real brother of Cambyses. Those historians are probably in the minority, but that's debated, right? Herodotus describes Darius I as having made war against the Scythians and others as part of a greater plan to invade Greece, a task which was not fully undertaken until the rule of his son, Xerxes I, who ruled Persia from 486 to 465 BC. So, while Darius was still king, 40,000 Persian soldiers invaded Greece in 490 BC. And were confronted by the Athenians in the famous Battle of Marathon, where they were badly defeated. This developed from earlier intrigues, as the Athenians were attempting to aid Greek cities in Anatolia in their attempts to break free from Persian rule. Suffering the defeat at Marathon, after Darius had died, but I really think that this process began before Darius died, right? After Darius had died, Xerxes assembled an army of over a million soldiers, according to Herodotus. Now, a lot of historians think that that's exaggerated. I somehow don't think it's exaggerated, and if it is, it's not exaggerated too greatly. And he assembled a navy of over 2,500 ships. And let me say quickly that 490 BC and the defeat of the Battle of Marathon, and I have done this at Christagenia, I, I have a paper on this at Christagenia in the references section of the website, and it's titled, I'm bringing it up now, I'm sorry, it, it's titled Notes Concerning Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy. Once you properly align the books of Ezra and Nehemiah into their rightful place in, in history, in Persian history, 
you'll see that Nehemiah was recalled to Babylon from being the governor in Judea in 490 BC, the same year that the Persians were defeated at the Battle of Marathon. And I honestly believe that those two events are connected, that Nehemiah was recalled to Babylon because of the Persian defeat, because Darius wanted to begin planning a much larger invasion of Greece. He tried to do it. He tried to take Athens with 40,000 men, and he failed miserably. It just wasn't enough for him, right? So he had to put a much larger army together. He didn't live to see that, so his son Xerxes executed that. So Xerxes assembled an army of over a million soldiers, according to Herodotus, a navy of over 2,500 ships to invade Greece again, and it was 480 B.C. And upon defeating Leonides at Thermopylae and marching to Athens, they found the city deserted and burned it. But in the aftermath, and Pericles rebuilt it after the Greeks won the war, right? But in the aftermath, they were defeated in the subsequent battles at Salamis, at Mycalae, at Platahia, and they were turned back from Europe in 479 BC. Of course, we are only offering a summary description of the war here. But as the Persians invaded Greece, the Carthaginians invaded Sicily. Carthage maintaining its loyalty to ancient Tyre, a vassal state of Persia, it is evident that this must have also been planned as it prevented the Greeks of Sicily and Italy, which at the time was called Magna Graecia, from coming to the aid of their fatherland. And, and that is something that is little discussed and sometimes doubted by mainstream historians, but I'm sure that it's true. And and this period was generally called the um, Ionian Revolt, right? When um, all the west coast of Anatolia, as you said, was trying to break away from Persia. And then once they had dealt with them, they started um, sending ships to all the little islands in between Greece and genociding um you know all, all the greeks and that's what eventually led some that landed on the coast of uh greece close to athens and that's what led to the battle they underestimated the uh athenians right and uh were defeated because of the brilliant uh general st strategies that he used to beat the persians then right there are and and i have clues i've dug up clues to this in some of my early historical essays, but it's been so long since I've covered that material in depth that I can't possibly remember all of the details. The Book of Nezar, his influence, because Tyre, the ancient city, was subject to him, and because the influence of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires stretched further west in Anatolia than most historians give it credit, give credit for. The Book of Nezar had a great amount of influence, much further west than is generally perceived, even as far as Carthage, which was indeed loyal to Tyre at this late period in, in many respects. So, I don't believe that the way ancient history is written 
that these empires and the rule and, and their authority and, and how far they stretched into the West is properly described. It's not properly accredited. And um, I think we already covered it, but it's even said, Daniel says, an inferior kingdom will rise after you to, to Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon must have been really powerful if it was in prophecy greater than the Persian Empire, right? It must have really reached all the way to the West. Yes, it, it had a lot more power in the West than the Persians ever had. Because by the time of, of, of the Persian Empire, I believe that the Carthaginians had, had gone their separate ways from Tyre. The western provinces of Anatolia were resubjected to the empire by the Persians. And that's the the Ionian and Dorian provinces of the Greeks, the, the Ionian and Dorian cities of the Greeks were all under control of the Persians in far western Anatolia, which is right to the shores of the Aegean Sea. And that is why the Persians, that, that was the reason for the Persians invading Athens, because the Athenians were also Ionians by blood. So they were agitating and assisting the Ionian provinces, the cities, Ephesus was an Ionian city and several other notable cities, and they were assisting them in a revolt from the Persians. So that's not, I, I believe that that is a, one of the less significant reasons for the war against the Greeks, because the way I saw it described in Herodotus as Darius was attempting to conquer the Scythians to the north and subject them all around the Black Sea. He was trying to conquer those Scythians and subject them to Persia. I believe that his plan, and, and I've seen allusions to this probably in Herodotus, maybe in other history books, but probably in Herodotus, that part of his plan was to to cut off the supply of wood to the Greeks, which came from the north. Greece doesn't have a lot of trees, by the way. I mean large trees that you could cut down and build ships from. So he was trying to cut off the supply of wood to the Greeks in order that he, he, he would be able to stifle the Greek ability to build ships so that he could... He tried to rule the waves. He tried to take over the seas and rule the seas. And that's evident in his shipbuilding effort, where Herodotus said he built 2,500 ships. He had the Phoenicians and, and the people on the coast of Syria to build those ships. He had all the wood he needed in the cedars of Lebanon at that time anyway, the cedars of Lebanon for the most part are gone today, but at that time he had all the natural resources he needed to do that. And he was trying to destroy the Greek ability to do that by conquering the Scythians and controlling the land around the Black Sea. I think that's verified by the, the later war, the Spartans versus Athenians. Uh, the Spartans eventually marched right north uh, past Macedonia 
and and I'm not sure that the, the names there, you know, Frace and all that, they, they managed to seize control of that and cut it off from the Athenians. And that, that was part of where they were getting a lot of their wood from. And that really hurt the Athenians and led to the Spartan eventual victory. But as, by cutting off the wood, essentially, for, them, well, right. for their ships, etc. Right. And Persia was trying to do that same thing under Darius. So that tells me that even though the Ionian revolt, when the Ionian cities began to rebel against Persia, that tells me that Darius had planned to invade Greece all along, regardless of the Ionian revolt. And um, just last thing, in that Battle of Marathon, it's interesting that when the Persians came, uh, they had three uh, lines, three columns, and the middle line was all sake, so, so it was Israelites. And uh, they actually obliterated the middle line of the Athenians. It was only the outer two lines, which were Persians, which the uh, Athenians slaughtered. And then they managed to surround uh, the sake. But, but it shows you the elite were then, even back then in 48 BC, the sake or Israelites were the elite of the Persians, right? And at the same time, they're fighting the Scythians. So it shows you how far we'd spread and how great and numerous we'd become and that we were still the greatest warriors, right? Even in the Persian Empire. Well, right. And the Greeks understood, especially after the the Anabasis, the march of Xenophon and the 10,000 soldiers that were with him, the Greeks understood how soft and effeminate the Persians had come, had, had become in, in their luxurious lifestyle. And, and we see that in the West today, that luxury and wealth creates a race of men that are soft and effeminate. So the Greeks understood that dynamic in their own day. And that's how Alexander had calculated that he could conquer Persia with 40,000 men. And he did. So we're getting off on a lot of digressions here. But Xerxes, the fourth king, counting from Cyrus the Great, right? That after him would arise three kings and then a fourth, who was far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against all the realm of Grecia, or Greece. That is precisely what he did. And all he did, since the prophecy does not say that, it would, that he would overcome the realm of Grecia, but only stir up all against it. And, and there were actually large numbers of sake from Scythia, from Sogdiana, from Bactria, everywhere that the children of Israel were dispersed by the Assyrians, and from Parthia and around the Caspian Sea. There were large numbers of sake in, in the army that Xerxes had assembled to invade Greece. And there were also large numbers of Tyrians who built and who manned the Persian ships. And those Tyrians were also, at least mostly, of the children of Israel. The people of Tyre, which had not been conquered. The island city, which had not been conquered by the Babylonians. But there were also many Phoenician Israelites remaining on the coasts as well. So, that being said, then Daniel said, after describing the fourth Persian king who would 
stir up against all against the Greeks, right? Then Daniel said in chapter 11, verse 3, And a mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and shall be divided towards the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he had ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those. And this must describe Alexander the Great, and we shall speak more of him when we return to Daniel chapter 8 and the vision of the ram and the goat. For now, all I'll say is that the uncanny and clearly providential prescience through which Daniel was able to reveal future history in his prophecies is clear. And we also see once again that the visions given to the project were centered around the people of Europe and Mesopotamia. If the white nations of those regions are the subjects of Daniel's prophecies, then they are also the children of Yahweh God, since the purposes of the prophecies are to reveal things which he would do with his people. If the children of Israel were in Africa, Asia, or the Americas at that time, then why would Daniel be prophesying about Europe while ignoring Africa, Asia, and the Americas? There are no prophecies about China or, or Uganda in, in the book of Daniel, but these are all clearly about Europe and European people, by which I also would count the people of Mesopotamia. In that I don't context. think those regions are ever mentioned in the Bible, are they, Bill? Except just um, invading armies that Ezekiel just sees swarming into Europe, right? He does, but never the, the people there or their nations, right? Just as enemies. Well, well right. In, in fact, in, in Isaiah, and, and this, I, I cite this passage all the time at, in my articles in Christagenia. In Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh gave up Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sheba on behalf of the children of Israel. Well, how did that happen? Because at the same time, those nations were being overrun with Nubians. So the Nubians aren't the people of God, but Yahweh gave up some of those Adamic nations to the Nubians, to the blacks from sub-Saharan Africa. They were seen as a plague, as a disease. Now to return to Daniel chapter 8, so that we may interpret the vision of the ram and the goat, which we have already read, and we will present, now we will present a verse or two at a time and offer our interpretation, which is in part verified by Daniel's vision of the four kings which we have just discussed. In the second verse of Daniel chapter 8, he wrote, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulai, or Ulai, U-L-A-I. The province of Elam was only a small portion of the Persian Empire. I'm sorry. Of the at this time, because this is the third year of 
Belshazzar, the province of Milan was only a small portion of the Babylonian Empire. It was the seat of the Persian people, the people of Ilam. And it was east of the Tigris River bordering the Persian Gulf. It was not in Mesopotamia, but it was adjacent to Mesopotamia on the east. Mesopotamia means land between the rivers or land amidst two rivers, the, the rivers, right? It's named Mesopotamia because it's in between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. So Elam was just outside of that on the east. Wherever we see the word Persia in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Elam, who was a son of Shem mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. So technically, the Persians were Shemites. The capital city of Elam was Susa, or Shushan here. So we see that even before the Persian conquest of Babylon, because this is still the third year of Belshazzar, that Daniel was in Shushan, that Daniel the prophet had moved east to Persia from Babylon. So we can honestly say that Daniel knew what was coming in one way or another. Continuing with the chapter, he writes, that I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. So like the two arms of silver in the vision of the book of Bezar, we can see the Persian Empire described much the same way in this vision, even before Persia became an empire. Because Persia wouldn't become an empire. This is the third year of Belshazzar ruling in Babylon. So the Bonidus is still the emperor. And Daniel is writing, ostensibly he's writing, before the Persians come to power. If he wasn't writing before the Persians come to power, if he was writing after the Persians had come to power, then he'd have dated this like he dated some of his other later visions according to what year it was of Cyrus the Great or Darius the Mede, as he called him. But he, he dated this according to the third year of Belshazzar. So the Persians haven't come to the empire yet, but Daniel is prophesying as if they did. At the core of this empire, were the and, and I should say this future empire, because Daniel is writing about 550 BC, he has this vision, and the empire, the Persians don't come to control it until 539 BC. At the core of this future empire were the Persians and the Medes. And the Persians had come to dominate the Medes. Once again, according to Herodotus, the last great king of the Medes, whom he had called Astyages, had also ruled over Persia. 
His daughter married a noble Persian from whom Cyrus was born. When Cyrus attained the empire, whereas the Medes formerly had the leading role, the situation was reversed and the Persians had the leading role. So, so Bill, um, the, the Mede or, or the Medes, they were kind of separate from Babylonia, right from the Babylonian Empire. Um, after they all allied and destroyed Assyria, the Scythians went north and some remained. And then you had Media and then you had Babylon, which concentrated more on the west than the south. And then eventually uh, Persia rose up, took Medes, uh, took control of the Medes. Then he went uh, west to beat Lud or Anatolia, and then he came back to Babylonia. Is that sort of how it happened? As Nebuchadnezzar consolidated his empire, I don't remember the exact order in, in which he had reconquered all of the various cities that tried to remain independent, all the various countries that tried to remain independent after the fall of Assyria. I don't remember exactly how that unfolded. I would, I would have to go back. A lot of Nebuchadnezzar's inscriptions survive, which describe that. But I don't remember exactly how it unfolded. No, I'm sorry. The Lydians had also broken free and, and at one point and tried to remain independent from the empire I believe it was Xerxes who conquered Lydia. After he conquered Lydia, he had um, Croesus, the former Lydian emperor, because that was considered an empire of its own, even though it was contained to a group of cities in western Anatolia. Croesus was, became a member of his court and one of his advisors, according to Herodotus. I don't know quite the extent of direct control that the Babylonians exerted over the Lydians, but evidently the Lydians were at least tributaries or subject to Babylon. And perhaps Croesus tried to assert his independence after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, but the Persians had, had conquered him once again. And Lydia remained under the Persian Empire. It was it it was constant. It was never black and white in the ancient world. In order to maintain that empire, and you could see this in all of the Assyrian inscriptions and the histories of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, that every time there was a new king, all of the other cities that, that thought that they could withstand that new king would revolt from the empire, stop paying tribute, come and get us, come and make us, come and make us pay. They were always hostile to the empires. So every time there was a new king, he would have to go out and reassert his authority over all the different portions of the empire. And then quite often, they would turn around and revolt anyway. He'd go back to Babylon or go back to, to Susa or, or whatever city he came from, Nineveh, and, and 
next year, they weren't paying their tribute. They were flipping them off, and, and he'd have to get an army and go back there and resubject them again. And, and we see that in, in the Bible, in the history of interactions between Jerusalem and the Persians, or, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem and the Assyrians, or Jerusalem and the Babylonians, that the Book of Nezar would leave, and the king would stop paying tribute, and the Book of Nezar would come back with a bigger army, and, and ended up destroying the city. So it was never cut and dry. The, the maps were never solid, and kings were always revolting against the empire. So they would challenge every new king, and sometimes they would challenge the same king multiple times. <laughs> okay, reading on in Daniel chapter 8 from verse 4. And I saw the ram, now we're asserting that this represents the kings of Persia, and I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And we've seen in the history of Persia that he did push westward, northward, and southward. We saw Cambyses, the Persian king in Egypt, reconquering or resubjecting Egypt to the empire. And he was successful in Egypt. He, according to Herodotus, he failed in Ethiopia. He was successful in Egypt, and he died going back to Susa, going back to his own land, his capital city, and never enjoyed the fruits of that success, and never got to go to the other part, other provinces that he wanted to resubject and resubject them. So. It was left to Xerxes and then to Darius to do that. The, the wars conducted by his father, Cam, the father of Cambyses, was Cyrus II. The wars conducted by Cyrus II and then later on by Xerxes and Darius against the Scythians to the north. And then we saw the push westward all the way to Greece, right? So that very well describes this, this ram but it didn't push eastward. <laughs> it didn't try to go through India and China, which should be, which is significant. That is a significant aspect of, of this prophecy, right, in, in my opinion. Alexander the Great did go eastward. He went all the way to the Indus River and even north of that to the Ganges River. And at the Ganges River, Alexander's troops said, we're not going any further east. And they revolted, and he relented and turned back and went to Babylon, where he died. According to the surviving records, because there are really no contemporary records. All the records about Alexander the Great weren't, that survived history weren't written until a hundred years after his time. So, this describes the Persian conquests of the remainder of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires which preceded it. Now, in the very next verse, the goat is introduced where Daniel wrote, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west, 
So the he-goat had to come from Europe on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So Daniel foresaw that this ram, the empire of the Persians and Medes, would be attacked from the west. Then he wrote, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, with anger, and smote the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now, I, I didn't write this in, into my notes, but that anger which the, the goat had for the ram can be manifest in, it, it is manifest in history. The, after the invasion of Greece by the Persians, which failed, and the Persians were turned back, the Persians retained their control over those Greek provinces in Anatolia. They stayed under Persian power. The Greeks never wrested those free from the Persians. They only kept the Persians out of Greece and kept them, prevented them from conquering Greece itself or from going any further west. So, for the next 60 or 70 years, the Persians instigated the Peloponnesian Wars. They instigated the wars between the Athenians and the Spartans, which the, those wars did more to destroy Greece than the Persian invasion had done, much more. So, the Greek city-states continued to fight with one another and squabble with one another until the time of Philip of Macedon, who went and conquered them all, and they became subject to him. But Philip of Macedon didn't really stretch his, his power beyond Greece, and Alexander was his son. Philip of Macedon was actually assassinated when Alexander was a young boy, and, and we'll get into that a little later. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add. Yeah, it's funny that they couldn't conquer Greece with a, a million men because when you do that, everyone just drops their squabbles and says, look, we've got no choice. We have to unite. And that's what happened, right? But once they left, they instantly started fighting with each other. And because Athens uh, probably played a part in the Ionian Revolt, the, uh, Persia started funding Sparta to, uh, you know, subjugate Athens or push Athens out of the way. But then they started to fear how powerful Sparta was coming. So they uh, started funding Thebes and they even, I believe, sent lots of generals there and, and formed a military and was able to defeat Sparta. But they didn't uh, count on Macedon suddenly rising up and attacking them. Right. And that's essentially what happened. Yes, that is essentially what happened, because Philip of Macedon was a short time before that Persian that, that Theban victory over the Spartans, which was probably one of the greatest upsets since the fall of Jericho, in, in my opinion. I mean, nobody ever expected Thebes to defeat the mighty Spartans in the field of battle. 
And um, Philip was a hostage at Thebes, so he actually um, learned from all the generals and all their tactics how they defeated Spire, and then he completely reformed his military and built, basically put all the preparations down for his son Alexander, who had a well-trained uh, modern military to take on Persia, right? Yes. But these men, and, and that's part of this story, that these men didn't rise up from nowhere. They were involved in... in in these wars and, and saw all of this treachery and political intrigue firsthand. And, and they're, they're, they themselves are a response to it in a lot of ways. I don't think that the, the Greeks would have ever wanted to conquer the Persians if it were not for the constant Persian meddling in Greek affairs. So that, collar which the goat had, the anger which the goat had for the ram, characterizes that. And and it shows how, to me, how accurate the words of the prophet are. For this reason, that the Jews and, and all those who want to dispute with God, right, who want to dispute with the scripture, they try to claim that Daniel lived at a much later time than Daniel said he lived. But the claim is ludicrous because Daniel clearly lived in the time which he'd written about. And, and I've said this before, the Greeks themselves had insisted that Semiramis, who represents a, an Assyrian queen of the 8th century BC, it, it's a Greek idealization with this, of, of this Assyrian queen who, who had lived a few centuries before, the Greek writers all, all of them, I never saw any dispute this, right from Herodotus, had claimed that Semiramis built Babylon. And, of course, we know that's not true, that Babylon was actually a city which was very ancient, which was older than Semiramis by 1,200 years, perhaps. But we also know from Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon. He actually rebuilt Babylon, and he did during his 44, 45-year reign, however long it was, 43-year reign, his 43-year rule over Babylon. And archaeologists have found bricks in the walls of Babylon which state that Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon, which had his name on them. So we know that Daniel is true, but the Greeks didn't know that. The Greeks never knew that. They never understood that. That was out of their reach. They would rather attribute the building of, Semiramis, of, of Babylon to Semiramis, to a woman. So the Greeks were always also feminists, right? <laughs> in a lot of ways. But yeah, right. That's something in, in history. that That's just one little aspect of the book of Daniel where archaeology has proven Daniel to be true. Okay. The father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, was assassinated when Alexander was only 16 in 336 BC. So Alexander was just a boy. He was just becoming a man, on his way to becoming a man. In 334 BC, two years later, Alexander set off on his campaign of conquest. By 324, Alexander had conquered not only Persia, but many of the tribes of the Scythians as far east 
as to the north of the Indus and Ganges rivers. By 323 BC, Alexander had returned to Babylon, where he evidently died from poisoning. And I will always believe that the poisoning was intentional. So as soon as he was secure in his empire, and he had conquered more territory than the Persians themselves had ever possessed, Alexander was dead. Just as we read in the very next verse of Daniel chapter 8, where it says, Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. For it came up, and for it, meaning and in place of it, came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander had left a wife and son behind in Macedonia. But the son never inherited any of his father's empire. Rather, his empire was divided into four pieces by his generals, something which is described in detail in the pages of the Greek historian Theodorus Siculus, and also in other sources. These circumstances fulfilled with great precision what Daniel had prophesied in chapter 11, which we've already read, where he said, And a mighty king shall stand up, and shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he shall stand, his kingdom shall be broken, and shall be divided towards the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others besides those." So, here also in Daniel chapter 8, it says that when the great horn, Alexander himself, was broken, that it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. So, by this, we also see that these visions in Daniel chapters 11 and 8 are indeed describing the same phenomenon which would appear in history at some point future to Daniel's time after the time when Xerxes had made war against the realm of Grecia, or Greece. So putting Daniel's cha Daniel chapters 8 and 11 together, we can see the clear fulfillment of these prophecies in history in the wars between the Persians and the Greeks. But later on in Daniel chapter 8, the prophet himself told us these things. We're not making this up. Daniel told us the interpretation where he said, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ule, the river in Susa, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when I came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be division. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep upon my face toward the ground. But he touched me and set me aright, set me upright. Now, I didn't study the Greek or, or the Hebrew where it says, at the time of the end. But I'm confident enough that I can assert that that was just a, a Hebrew idiom for meaning in the future. 
it doesn't say at the time of the end of what. This isn't some prophecy of some 3,000-year-later future Antichrist. That's ridiculous. It, it simply is a Hebrew idiom for the future. Now as he was speaking with me, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram, and, and that word end can also in some senses mean the fulfillment of this vision. The ram, which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, or Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of that nation, but not in his power. So Daniel interprets it for us. So we're definitely not stretching any points here or coming up with anything fantastic. We can see exactly how this was fulfilled in history. And Alexander's really the only person you could call a king of the, the king of Greece, right? Because after that, um, you know, it was all split up. No one really had the same power Alexander ever had over all of Greece, right? Well, well right. And, and even in, in Hebrew, it's not Greece. It's Yavan. And Yavan, the Yavana in Persian inscriptions, are the Ionian Greeks. And we read in Ezekiel, Dan and Javan going to and fro in thy ships. The Ionians were the oldest tribe of the Greeks, right? They were there before the Danans, before the Dorians, before Macedonia was formed out of Danans and Dorians and Illyrians. So they were there, and they became representative of what we call Greece. But what we call Greece is from a Latin term that the Greeks themselves had never used. So in prophecy, Javan represents the Greeks, but the Dorian and Danan tribes that settled, the portions of those tribes which settled in Greece and became Greek in their language and their culture, they're also a part of these visions. It's just that the Yavan had, had been the principal tribe of the Greeks, of the Hellenes, and the center of what we know as Greek art and literature was always Athens. It was never Sparta. I mean, the Spartans were great warriors, but when a, when a Dorian Greek wanted to get involved in art and literature, he went to Athens. It, it was the center of Greek culture. So Yavan represents Greece in prophecy, and that's fair. So 
So with that background, we should move on to discuss the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, which is a vision that follows the vision of the ram and the goat. After the vision of the ram and the goat in Daniel chapter 8, we see a vision of another little horn. It's not the same little horn as Daniel chapter 7. And after it says that the goat's kingdom would come to four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven, we read, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yeah, he magnified himself to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint, which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And that was the man that went on to explain the prophecy beginning from the ram and the goat. That was the man that called to Gabriel. So this first man, or angel, goes on to describe the meaning of the vision of the goat and the ram, which we have already discussed. But then it describes this little horn, and we read from where we had also left off, where it referred to the four kings come out of the goat, and in a later time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, it is my theory when we interpret this that where it says that a fierce king shall stand up and have great power, but not by his own power, that he will only be a puppet for other more sinister powers that remain behind the scenes. That's my, my theory on that, on interpreting that passage. And through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many, Of course, he shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. 
and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. In other words, it would be impossible to interpret. And I, Daniel, fainted, and was six certain days. Afterward I rose up, and he did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So, what was about to happen would not happen for many days. Putting the vision of the little horn together with the interpretation of the little horn. It does not come immediately after the goat passes, but in the later time of the kingdoms which arose after the goat had passed. Then, where it says that it will wax great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, even to the host of heaven. We see that the host of heaven aren't necessarily in the south and the east. They're in the north and the west. And it cast down some of the stars and stamped upon them. We must interpret that according to the explanation where it says that he shall destroy the mighty and holy people. Then in the vision where it says, it cast down truth, the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. We should interpret that according to the interpretation of the angel, which says, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. I don't know if you and, have. Um, Islam's, sorry, Islam's always just been a pawn of the Jews, right? I mean, uh, that they've always just been a mindless army that just ascent against Europeans, right? Absolutely. And, and I don't care what the history books say. What the, that's the Jewish version of history. Muhammad was always a pawn for the Jews. He was a puppet for the Jews. He, he, he did not write the Quran. The Quran, I've read enough of the Quran to realize that it is one of the biggest piles of shit in the halls of history. It, it is pure bulmanor. It, it, it even acknowledges Jesus and the apostles, but it corrupts Jesus into being a mere prophet who is subordinate to the greater prophet Muhammad, and it portrays Jesus as a Muslim and his apostles as obedient Muslims flying carpets to heaven. It it's, it's just makes a mockery of everything that is New Testament or Old Testament. And it's mostly based on Jewish apocryphal works. And um, they did spread to the south and the east right all of north africa and all of the east essentially become islam and then as you said to also to our people which would be the north and the west to europe well yes and, they tried. Um, sorry, the other thing i was going to say and it's very clearly a ci statement against the holy people so there is a race of people who are holy who are the israelites who must be these europeans then right absolutely they're not in the south and the east they're in the north and the west 
and Islam tried to extend into the north and the west, and doing so, it cast many of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. This little horn is actually also very different from the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which we interpreted to be the same as the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon and spoke great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of a time. That describes an entity which would rule over all of the people of God under the pretense of having authority from God. But this little horn of Daniel chapter 8 is different since it is prophesied to destroy the people of God overtly and to speak against Christ directly. The people of God are also the host of heaven and the stars cast down to the ground as Abraham was told that his seed would be as the stars of heaven. Therefore, we must find a historic entity which arose out of one of the four portions of Alexander's empire and made war not only against Jesus Christ or Yahshua Christ to us, the prince of princes, but also directly against the people of the prince. And I interpret prince of princes here through the lens of the prophecy of Christ, the prophecy of Messiah, the prince, in Daniel chapter 9. Now, this may be arguable, as it is not generally recognized that Arabia was within the territory of the four portions, and you yourself had raised that concern to me before this program, before we began to present this. However, Muhammad was descended from Jews that were in Arabia because they were no longer welcome or found it difficult to live within the Christian Byzantine Empire. And I'm going to mention Isidore of Seville in reference to that. Then where it says that this little horn would take away the daily rituals or sacrifice, but also that a host would be given to this little horn against the daily sacrifice for reason of transgression. It is plausible that Daniel is describing a change of religion forced upon men overcome by this little horn. So we can only conclude that this little horn is Muhammad, who is presumed to be the prophet of Islam. But Islam is just a Jewish fantasy. It, it's the way that the Jews have subjected the non-Jews of all of the Arab world. And to the East, you had mentioned taking Islam to the East. There were Muslims in the South Pacific, as far as the Philippines, even before the Spanish and the English ever got there. Islam was already there. And um, Arabia would have been full of Canaanites and Edomites and um, uh, descendants of Rephaim. And you put it all in a blender, that's essentially what came out, right? And that spread everywhere, the, the genetics, because 
they they forced the other nations to intermarry with them right when they took it all over right it is clear to me that the people who created islam had come out from portions of alexander's empire which by that time was the byzantine empire it had become consolidated into the byzantine empire and had concocted this religion in the deserts of arabia because they wouldn't convert the the arab tribes to judaism they converted them to this new religion that they fabricated which was very similar to judaism extremely similar to judaism without the notion of the jews as god's chosen people right remove that and islam is extremely similar and also claims descent for from Abraham, which the Arabs did not have. They were mixed races. They were not Abrahamic races. That is also a farce. Some Arab tribes did descend from Ishmael, but those Arab tribes were close to the land of Edomia and had already been intermingling with the Edomites for hundreds of years in Nabatahia and in Edom for hundreds of years, I'm sorry, for about two, two millennia, for about 2,000 years, they had been intermingling with Edomites. So these Jews that contrived Islam in the Arabian desert certainly did come out of the Byzantine Empire. And at the time, the political climate for Jews within the Byzantine Empire was very hostile. And it had been, ever since the days of Constantine, been growing more and more hostile. So Isidore of Seville is not the beginning of anti-Antichrist. I won't call it anti-Semitism because that's also a misnomer. The Jews are not true Semites. But it was the beginning of anti-Antichristism in the in, in the Roman Catholic Church. It actually began with Constantine the Great, but later emperors, Theodosius I, Theodosius II, Justinian, had already passed laws hampering the Jews within the empire. But then we come to 633 AD, and... Isidore of Seville. And this happens to be at the very same exact time that Islam is being formulated in the Arabian desert. So this is not a coincidence. It's a Kohen incidence. It's not a coincidence. In 633 AD, Isidore of Seville, a Christian Seville is in Spain, I believe, or it might be in France. I don't, I think it's in Spain. I'm sorry. It's in Spain. I don't even remember, right? In 633 AD, he contributed two decisions to the Fourth Council of Toledo. They became Canon 60 and Canon 65. They became canons of the Roman Catholic Church. Canon 60 called for the forced removal of children from parents practicing crypto-Judaism, in other words, Jews that claimed to be Christians but were still practicing Jews, 
all the way back in the 7th century. There was this crypto-Judaism problem. And their education by Christians. He wanted to remove their children if they were crypto-Jews and have them educated by Christians. And Canon 65, forbidding Jews and Christians of Jewish origin from holding public office. So, I believe in many ways Jews were already restricted from holding public office, possibly from the days of Justinian. But here, even Christians of Jewish origin were forbidden from holding public office, so that Jews could no longer claim to be Christians and rule over us. And this was, in effect, once this became canon, this was the law of all the churches and of the empire. And that was a big mistake, right? Trying to separate them and then trying to raise them as Christians. Well, yes, it was a big mistake. But early churchmen, including Isidore of Seville, and I have a link to the Wikipedia article, and I hate Wikipedia, and I know that most of us that understand the truth should hate Wikipedia. But Wikipedia, does, it can't lie about everything, right? It would have no credibility at all. So some of the things that it says about Isidore of Seville are just matter of fact, right? And this is simply matter of fact. Wikipedia can't lie about this. It's, it's in church records and, and it's in encyclopedias for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, Isidore of Seville, like many medieval clergy, clergymen, had thought that the Jews, the presence of Jews among Christians was important because of the fulfillment of prophecy in the Revelation. Because they would be... Uh, now, they didn't, they didn't interpret that prophecy correctly, but they knew that the tares had to be among the wheat. They knew that Jews had to be present because of the prophecies in Revelation. So they accepted it as a necessary evil. And Isidore Seville was one of them. Sadly, crypto-Jews would come to prevail in setting Roman Catholic doctrines and interpretations, and to a greater extent, among the Protestants of the Reformation. And, and they had even badly infected the thinking and biblical interpretations of men like Martin Luther. But it can be established that Muhammad was a Jew, that his mother and perhaps even his father were Jews, and that Jewish scribes had written at least most of his so-called holy book called the Quran, which is really garbage. And they had written it on his behalf. So where it says in verse 24 that his power shall be mighty, but not his own power, we see that Muhammad was an agent, a puppet for Jewry, and they had brought him to power at the exact same time that those canons are being passed in the Roman Catholic Church and becoming law. They had brought him to power so that they may have a weapon against the people of Christ. 
From the time of Muhammad, the mongrel races were being converted to Islam wherever there were Jews, which was primarily in Khazaria and Arabia. As the Jews were being run out of the empire, the Jews were bringing in Muslims, both Turks and Arabs, to invade and destroy the empire. So Islam is a reaction to Christianity. The writings of the Quran pretend to acknowledge Christ and his apostles, but actually they make a mockery of Christ and his apostles while speaking blasphemies against Christ and maintaining a form of control over men which is hospitable to the designs of Jewry. While Jews and Muslims pretend to be opposed to one another in Palestine, Outside of the recent history of the region, they have always been close allies. All through the medieval period, the Jews of Spain sought assistance from the Turks against the Inquisition, against the, the, the forced conversions or expulsions. They had sought the assistance. They had written to the Ottoman Turks seeking help. And it was probably the Jews who were behind all of the wars between the Kingdom of Venice and the, and the Turks and, and the Turkish onslaughts and, and pillaging of European shipping and the coasts of Europe, where they took millions of white Christian Europeans into slavery in Africa and in the East, long before they ever started dealing in Negro slaves, the Ottomans and, and the Turks, the Turks, the Arabs, were dealing in whites as slaves. So at this point, I want to read a few passages from Clifton M. Heiser's Watchman's Teaching Letter Number 55, which was for November of 2002. In, in teaching letter number 54, Clifton had presented basically the same interpretation that we are of this little horn as Muhammad. Clifton says, probably one of the more important aspects we should consider about Muhammad is that, reportedly, among some authors, his mother was a Jewess. If that account is true, apparently we have an added element to the equation. Once that added detail is brought to light, we can better understand his satanic-motivated aspirations. Conceivably, he had the seed of the serpent flowing in his veins. With this added data, we can begin to acquire an idea of what Muhammad was all about. Before we get into the story of his escapades, let's document this apparent Jewish connection. For this, we use Alzog's Universal Church History, copyright 1902, volume 2, page 192, and Clifton quotes, and it's a short passage, Muhammad, who was the only son of Abdallah, a pagan, his father, and Amina, a Jewess and was descended from the noble but impoverished family of Hashim, of the priestly tribe of Quraysh, who were the chiefs and keepers of the national sanctuary of the Kaaba, and pretended to trace their origin to 
Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, was born at Mecca, August 20th, 570 AD. The History of the Decline and Fall of Rome by Edward Gibbon. I have that on my shelves, inherited from Clifton. Volume 5, I probably have Alzog too, but I don't remember exactly where it is, right? Volume 5, page 205, speaking of his father and grandfather. Although debated, also witnesses to this, and Clifton quotes from Gibbon. The glory of Abdal Motaleb, a name, was crowned with domestic happiness. His life was prolonged to the age of 110 years. He became the father of six daughters and 13 sons. His best beloved Abdallah was the most beautiful and modest of the Arabian youth. And in the first night, when he consummated his marriage with Amina, of the noble race of the Zarhites, and I'll get to that in a moment, 200 virgins are said to have expired of jealousy and despair. Mahomet, or Muhammad, the only son of Abdallah and Amina, was born at Mecca four years after the death of Justinian and two months after the defeat of the Abyssinians, whose victory would have introduced into the Kaaba the religion of the Christians. Then, in a footnote on page 205, we read this. Amina was of Jewish birth, and he is citing a German writer and work named, and the writer's name was Von Hammer. It looks like History of the Assassins by Von Hammer, trying to read a German word that was punctuated. I'll have a link to Clifton's longer article when we present this at Christagenia. Family, the noble family of the Tsarhites, the noble race of the Tsarhites, the only people who would claim that were Jews, claiming to be of the portion of Judah that descended from the tribe of Zara. So there we have two medieval witnesses that Muhammad was a Jew through his mother's side, which is a real Jew in the eyes of the Jews, right? All ties to Ishmael are tenuous, that they're um, based on very thin claims. And Ishmael was rejected by Abraham. He was sent off. He was told to beat it, that Isaac would be his heir. Christians should never have any, give any space to Arabs, who are all bastards. And they're all mixed with Canaanites and Rephaim and Nephilim, and they are the enemies of God at least as much as the Jews are the enemies of God, being Edomites. We should continue our discussion of this little horn as Daniel of Daniel chapter 8 as we present our next proof identifying the locus of Revelation chapter 9. Because just like Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 13 had corroborated one another in our interpretations anyway, of the two beasts of Revelation 13 and the little horn of Daniel 7, in that same manner, this portion of Daniel chapter 8 finds corroboration in Revelation chapter 9 because they are also speaking of the same historical entity and, and the 
consequences of Muhammad. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Well, yeah, I, I was just at some point going to say, uh, I, we'll probably get into it uh, later, but in the Revelation, he's described as death coming out of the pit, right? That That's essentially how he's described. And, and, and very much it's like the, the Jews um, who are like the leaders, that the serpent of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they took over the role of, of the fallen angels and they created this religion to kind of um, militarize all, all the rest of the uh, bastard races, right? into this swarm to take on Europe, which we've said already many times, right? Absolutely. And and we'll say it again next week, I pray. <laughs> Yahweh willing. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh and good night.